Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Charles McKinney on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Greater Freedom, The Evolution of the Civil Rights Struggle in Wilson, North Carolina. When I was an undergraduate oh so many years ago, it seemed that there was a list of books that one had to read in order to graduate. And those books included things like Plato's Republic and Rousseau's Social Contract and Freud's Civilization and its Discontent, that sort of thing. But there was one book on this list that always stood out for me, and and that was William Sheridan Allen's Nazi Seizure of Power, The Experience of a Single German Town, 1922 to 1945. This book, unlike the others, was a history book. And it told a rather sad story. It was the story of how uh, a group of people, Germans in this case, in a small town, made the decision to support Nazism and all that followed from that. And it gave us a new insight into the appeal of the Nazi movement. Well, Charles McKinney has written a book that is similar in a way. It is what is sometimes called a micro-history. I don't particularly like that term, but it's a local history of a town in North Carolina, Wilson, and the struggle of African Americans there for what he calls greater freedom. And it's really a long struggle, a struggle for, and it's really a story of the long civil rights movement because Charles begins the story in the 1930s, long before most people would consider the civil rights movement to have begun. And he takes it all the way through the present. And he introduces you to the people, the actual people, the individuals who work towards gaining civil rights for African-Americans. And he talks, of course, about the whites who were involved as well and how they tried to fight and accommodate and negotiate with the African-American activists. What's really terrific about this book is that, again, it puts a broad national event in a kind of local focus so that you actually get to see how it worked outside of any abstractions. Who knew whom? Who could influence whom? What organizations were involved? Who had the money? Who was on the city council? The kind of thing that you need in order to understand why anything happens on the local level. And we should always remember, just like politics, almost all history is local. So kind of hope that Charles's book will be read widely like William Sheridan Allen's book. I enjoyed talking with him today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Charles. Hello, Marshall. How are you today? Doing all right. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. Today we have Charles McKinney on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Greater Freedom, The Evolution of the Civil Rights Struggle in Wilson, North Carolina. I have read this book, and I can tell you that it is the product of Uh, long and hard labors. It is very rewarding to read. It is what is sometimes called, I don't particularly like this word myself, I guess micro history or local history. I just think of it as history. But uh, yeah, this is the history of a community and it's uh, the the, the attempts uh, to to kind of move into uh, an era of greater greater freedom and greater civil rights. And uh, one thing that's really terrific about the book is there are actually people in it. (laughs) <laughs> there are personalities. You actually get to see who did what on the on the local level. And, and uh, it, it reminded me of going to um, city council meetings here in Iowa City. I recognize some of these characters, Charles. 
I know some of these people. <laughs> they're doing different things now, but they're, uh, I recognize these people from the yes. city council meetings. So yes. it's a terrific book, and I hope people go out and, and read it. Charles, why don't you help us begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I was born in um, Jefferson City, Missouri and spent the first six years of my life there. My father worked at Lincoln University there in Jeff City. Uh, At the age of six, we moved out to Santa Barbara, California, so I stayed out in California until uh, until high school and then went to uh, college at Morehouse College in Atlanta. Um, I was, uh, as, a, as, a, as a Californian, uh, basically, I was dead set on going to UCLA, mm-hmm. uh, go Bruins, you know, <laughs> down, with, down with the Trojans. Still, I still hate the Trojans to this day, no offense to those Trojan listeners out there. Um, but uh, I, uh, I wound up at Morehouse. I got a scholarship to Morehouse, and, and uh, it was a transformative experience. It allowed me to um, achieve my highest academic potential, and it put me in touch with um, so many uh, networks, southern networks, um, mm-hmm. particularly uh, intellectual and academic networks. And, and, so, uh, and, and so I was seriously... Seriously challenged and 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 given an opportunity to to explore um, freedom struggles throughout the uh, American South. Mm-hmm. Um, the first history class I took, we we'd read uh, William Chafe's uh, Civilities and Civil Rights. Um, my advisor at Morehouse, Marcellus Barksdale, was also a, a Duke graduate. He went to grad school at Duke. He was the second African American to get his uh, PhD wow. in the history department in 1977. Wow. Or and so um, I took his class and uh, was on local local civil rights movements, and I was I was hooked. And Morehouse uh, provided me an opportunity to um, to really uh, explore in a, in a substantive way uh, social change movements, uh, not only in Atlanta but uh, throughout throughout the region. As I immersed myself in the major, so, uh, mm-hmm. so Morehouse for four years, graduate graduating in 1989, and then I taught elementary school for a year uh, mm-hmm. back out in Los Angeles. Uh, third grade at <laughs> Ralph Bunch Elementary School. I knew I wasn't going straight into graduate school, um, but by the end of that year, I was. Oh boy, I couldn't wait to get back. Uh, to school. <laughs> it was a. It was a humbling. It was a humbling and searing experience, Marshall. Teaching, yeah, teaching third grade. Yeah, I uh, bet. My first day of class, I had forty-seven students. Yeah. And um, budget cuts and, you know, teacher migrations and all this other stuff. So we, we had a lot of recess that first week. Of, yeah. uh, so, <laughs> a lot of recess. And so, uh, so after, a year of, after a year of teaching elementary school, and I um, uh, went to graduate school at uh, – started graduate school at Duke and um, got, my, got my master's and then left school for a number of years. Left school for about five years after getting my master's in 93. Worked in uh, the nonprofit sector. Worked for an AmeriCorps program called uh-huh. Public Allies. Leadership development program for young people between the ages of 18 and 30. Did that for a number of years. Worked for a juvenile diversion program. And rediscovered my reasons for wanting to finish graduate school. One of my major problems was I, I sort of felt like a, I, I sort of felt like I was a, a cheerleader, sort of watching a larger, watching a really important game uh, taking place and, and not participating. Mm-hmm. I was writing about inequality and I was writing about um, freedom struggles and freedom movements, uh, but I was living in Durham in the early '90s, mid '90s, and and uh, you know 
there were a number of challenges that were facing um, poor and working class communities. And so I felt like I, I needed to be a little more connected to uh, those those realities. And so I, I spent a little time in the nonprofit sector, discovered and, uh, and I guess re-realized that um, that going to graduate school and, and attaining a graduate degree is not necessarily incompatible with, uh, you know, with uh, trying to find an ability to express concern or support for, mm-hmm. um, you know, for particular sorts of movements and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So I uh, went back to graduate school and wound up working with uh, Bill Chafe, who was also my mm-hmm. mentor's advisor uh, at Duke, and also Charles Payne, um, who had written a, a wonderful book, um, I've Got the Light of Freedom, that came out in 93 or 94. Larry Goodwin and Ray Gavins and uh, William Turner and C. Eric Lincoln. And it's just a, a coterie of a coterie of scholars who um, who really blazed a trail and 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 uh, really really worked me worked me over um, mm-hmm. when I went back to went back to school. So I finished Duke in uh, two thousand and three. Did a postdoc in the African American Studies program there, and, uh, and then um, lucked up and got this job here at uh, Rhodes College, where I'm now an associate professor. Mm, wow. Well, congratulations on that. Um, let, let me, uh, you know, this isn't about history so much, but I've, I, I feel compelled to ask, what was it like moving from L.A. to a, an all-African-American environment at Morehouse? For those people who are listening internationally, Morehouse is one of the many historically black colleges and universities in the United States. And I just kind of wonder what that must have been like to be an L.A. kid and then move into that environment. Well, it was it was even more extreme than that, Marshall. I was a Santa Barbara. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. an LA kid. You know, an LA yeah. kid would 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 have had a slightly different experience mm-hmm. than me. I was a Santa Barbara kid, and yeah. I used to joke all the time that when my family left town, the the percentage of African Americans would decrease you know, <laughs> substantially. Um, you know, they would. You know, if they left town for the summer, they would have to. I feel like they should have been compelled to change. The the population on the sign because you know, yeah. the four of us, when the four of us left, there was like a three percent drop in the African American population. So, you know, and, and so my parents, the summer of my junior year, they told me, "Look, you know," and I love them to this day for this. They said, "Look, you can go to school anywhere you want, but there's a number of schools out there that you have not been exposed to." And um, both of my parents were graduates of historically um, black uh, colleges, uh, University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff in Pine uh-huh. Bluff, Arkansas. And so they took me on a black college tour uh-huh. the summer of my junior year. So we went to Texas Southern, uh, went to Grambling, went to Tuskegee, and we, the tour culminated with Morehouse. Mm-hmm. And to be in that environment, to be at a school where, you know, where everybody looked like I did, mm-hmm. um, and... You know, this is in the this is in the mid eighties, uh, mid mid to late eighties, and uh, you know, affirmative action, and uh, you know, the, the conversations and debates and arguments about diversity and, and, and affirmative action programming and things of this nature were really starting to sort of flare mm-hmm. up. And so, um, what appealed to me about coming going to a place like Morehouse was all of that stuff was going to be off the table for me. <laughs> yeah. um, you know what I mean? I, you, know, right, you didn't I, have to worry about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, 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 um, you know, at no point in time was I going to go into class and somebody was going to assume that I was taking somebody else's place, yeah, that's true. right? Because of a quota. I haven't because, thought about that. You know, and so, and so, um, so that was that was appealing to me, and I'd never had. Uh, in, in 12 years of formal education, I'd had exactly one African-American teacher. 
And that was yeah. my music teacher in yeah. high school. And yeah. so, um, you know, so to go to Morehouse, to, to, to go down to an institution that was crafted specifically to educate me was a, um, was a very compelling, uh, was a very compelling experience. And so, uh, and so after that summer, after that summer tour, I was like, yeah, I'm, I think that's, that's where I'm going. So I'm, mm-hmm. instead of going to UCLA, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Morehouse mm-hmm. because the folks down here are, uh, you know, my, my success, my, um, my intellectual odyssey, my intellectual journeys, um, it, it's the number one, it's, the, it's their number one priority. Uh-huh. Right? And so many of the things, so many of the factors and ingredients that complicate that odyssey uh, were taken off the table for me. Now, that's let's be, you know, let's be clear. This, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't heaven. Right. right. So, you know, there were, you know, there's always challenges, you know, um, you know, a, a range of range of challenges in, in terms of, you know, college life and trying to figure out how to navigate, navigate those challenges. And so, you know, and so in many respects, my my experience wasn't that different from mm-hmm. from a lot of other folks experience. But I know for me, uh, Morehouse was was a place that, um, as a friend of mine, again, said that it was going to allow me to reach my highest, my highest academic potential. And, and hopefully that's 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 what I did. I like to think that's what I, I did. think you so, did. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a terrific story. I mean, you can't. This doesn't. Uh, it, it doesn't um, translate very well on the radio, but I'm smiling. <laughs> yeah, it really sounds like a terrific. So I had a, I had an experience like that. Obviously, it didn't involve the same factors. In in college, I went to a liberal arts college in Iowa, and it was a really mind blowing experience for me. And it's truly truly transformative. But I'll tell you what, I, I'm pretty sure that after this interview is posted and people hear it, that you're going to get a call from Morehouse. <laughs> They're going to ask you to come speak or something. And I, well, I hope so. yeah, um, because you're a great advocate for the place. And I it, it's I just find it very interesting. It's it's um it's a part of American life that I don't think many, many of the listeners to this show are are from elsewhere. I don't think they know a lot about it, and uh, and I think when they hear about it, they, they kind of they kind of you know they they uh, you know they kind of cock their head, but right. uh, but but because it is it's a kind of a weird thing in a way, um, but you know hearing you talk about it so eloquently and, and positively is a you just make, I don't know it makes you me know, proud to be an American. What can I say? <laughs> I really does. I, you know, I, well, you know, it's it's the existence of these institutions and the continued existence of, of historically black colleges and universities. I. You know, I, I talk about the existence of these institutions and other all-black institutions to really sort of complicate the you know the narrative we have yeah. around uh, around civil rights and inequality and yeah. and things of that nature um, uh, uh, in, in in American society. Right? Yeah, yeah. What's the, you know, so there is a so there is a dynamic tension um, between you know the existence of these sorts of colleges and the perceived notions yep. of of you know of color blindness and, and equality and, and, and things of that nature so yep. you know and so and those are always very you know those are always very rich conversations and i'm also and i'm always quick to remind people that you know there's a difference there's a huge difference between um uh between historically black colleges and universities now and uh the reality of all oh, yeah. white institutions back in the early oh, yeah. part of the 20th century yeah. right um you know segregation i mean it was illegal for yeah. right. my parents to attend um the, the university of arkansas mm-hmm. uh, at, at, at little rock in the you mm-hmm. know in the first first third of the 20th century right mm-hmm. that was just that was a violation of state law mm-hmm. right it just could not happen yeah um um whereas you know there's nobody there there's there are no legal restrictions stopping anybody from attending an historically black college or university yep right and so um you know which 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 leads to a, another set of yeah, you know, really very interesting, interesting questions very yeah. interesting questions right yeah. you know and so um so yeah so it's always it's always fun to 
Yeah, it's a cool thing. It's a cool thing, and it's really interesting. Thanks. I know it's a kind of a digression from the main topic, which we're going to get to right now, uh, but thank you for speaking about that. So tell us how you came to write this book. Well, uh, again, as a grad student at, at Duke, Duke is one of the epicenters, along with um, along with uh, UNC, uh, Chapel Hill, and and uh, a few other places. Duke was one of the major epicenters in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, where uh, there was an increasing focus and interest on local studies on community studies um and and the the need and the and and the urgency of 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 creating these community studies was really was was really felt and i and i'd already and coming in i knew that i was going to be very interested in in trying to find uh find a, a particular community to study and again you know the the uh, you know the, the the arc the trajectory of of of, of the historical of historical scholarship. Um, you know we were still pretty much laboring under what uh, Julian Bond and others have called a master narrative of the civil rights movement. Oh, yeah. That that you know this top down narrative that you know Martin King and Lyndon Johnson and the NAACP crafted civil rights policy and everybody else was just sort of soldiers in this. In this in this glorious battle, who were following orders, and it's very, very uncomplicated, very simple, um, a little too uncomplicated, a little too simple, uh, and not quite accurate. And so, so I, I knew I wanted to do a local study, and and uh, in my in, in, the, in the initial iteration of this project, I was going to do a comparative study, and so I was thinking, okay, I want to do something in eastern North Carolina, which is pretty under researched, and maybe something in the Piedmont, and. You know, and then the Piedmont sort of dropped away uh, because I became more and more interested in in what was going on out in eastern North Carolina. Again, a relatively under-researched portion of the of the state. And so, um, so when I started knocking around in in Wilson, I bumped into some I bumped into some pretty interesting stuff. I bumped into some inter- interesting people um, and some some dynamics that caught my attention. And so, this book is. Is a is a pared down, hopefully better version of the uh, dissertation that uh, I turned in uh, in two thousand and three mm-hmm. uh, about about Wilson, uh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Well, tell, tell us begin by telling us about Wilson. What do they do there? Who lived there? Who sure. lives there now? That kind of thing. Because I've never been there. I confess. <laughs> right. Well, you know, maybe I'll go. I don't yeah, know. Well, you know, maybe so. Maybe so. Um, if, I, if if I do this right, the Wilson Chamber of Commerce will. Uh, <laughs> They'll invite you uh, too. You go to speaking tour. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, the the first thing, one of the first things you, you need to know about Wilson was that in there, um, for most of the 20th century, Wilson was the number one producer of bright leaf tobacco in the world. Um, and so what that means was that just about. Uh, you know, eighty percent of, of of people who are working in the farm, who are working on farms, or working in agriculture, are working in tobacco. Um, black tenant farmers, as well as white tenant farmers, and and so that so that fact shapes a lot of the social and economic and political terrain. People in Wilson, a critical mass of the population of Wilson County is tied to the land in some way, shape, or form. They are tied or connected to tobacco. So if they're not picking tobacco, they're working in the warehouses where they are processing the tobacco. Mm -hmm. Um, They're working um, to store, um, to smoke and cure the tobacco. They're working on, uh, they're working in auction houses. Um, Wilson used to be packed, um, 
before um, auto, you know before automation and, mm-hmm. and, and new technology sort of ravaged the industry, uh, packed with warehouses and auction houses and things of this nature. And so, so that's sort of the first. That's one of the first facts about uh, about Wilson Wilson County. And forty percent of the county is African American. And so of that 40%, again, a large contingent, a, a, a majority of them are tied, majority of those folks are tied to the land. And, and so, so what that meant for, for me as a person who was going to school back in the day in North Carolina, North Carolina's got a reputation as one of the more moderate southern states. Um, Bill Chafe's book on civilities and civil rights about Greensboro and Christina Green's work in, um, on, on Durham, uh, Durham, North Carolina, and, and, and other works on, on, on other cities really sort of nailed, that, nailed this down, right? That, we'll, that, that North Carolina is a moderate, it's a moderate state. And because of this moderate, um, moderate political and economic and social climate, uh, it was able to achieve uh, a level of uh, a level of civil rights activism that we don't see in in, in in the lower south right where there's higher levels of violence more economic marginalization and things of that nature mm-hmm. so what i found in, in wilson was that the dynamics uh the social economic and political uh dynamics in eastern north carolina are a lot more like uh, were a lot more like uh the dynamics we saw in the deep south which presents a, a bit of a you know a, a bit of a contradiction, mm-hmm. right? Um, the the moderate reputation that that North Carolina acquires as a state is largely produced in the Piedmont, is largely produced in the major cities in Charlotte and, and Raleigh and, and Durham, um, and and so those those these, this this moderate notion right or, or this culture of civility falls away when we penetrate and analyze and, and really sort of observe eastern North Carolina. And so uh, that and that's and that was the and that was the dynamic that sort of set me on my way. Right. How can a place like Wilson that's got high levels of of, of, of tenant farming, right? Eastern North Carolina is the, the, the portion of the state where um, the vast majority of slaves uh, in the state where we're working. Um, and again, Wilson, uh, Wilson County is located about 50 miles east of Raleigh. Mm-hmm. Um, it is on the western edge of the Black Belt, where the vast majority of African Americans in the state live. Mm-hmm. And so um, African Americans are tenant farmers. They are tied to the land. Incidents of violence are higher in eastern North Carolina. Economic marginalization, um, again, sort of resembles that marginalization we see in the, in the, in the deep south. It's harder to, it's harder to organize. The, the middle class that we see in major urban centers in North Carolina and, and across the south, that middle class is, uh, is a fraction of its size mm-hmm. in a place like Wilson. There isn't, there isn't a phalanx of black lawyers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one black lawyer. Yeah. There isn't, there isn't yeah. a, you know, a, a phalanx of, of black doctors. There's, you know, there's a, there's a smattering of doctors. There's a smattering of, uh, of, of public school teachers, and, and without this cover from other elements of a black middle class, those teachers are even more sort of consigned to, uh, to inaction um, in order to sort of preserve their, their, their jobs and their livelihood and things of that nature. And so, so uh, you know, and so it's, it's the, the combination of these, of, of these factors that, that, that led me to want to study Wilson uh, in an in-depth way. And so one of the first stories that I bump into when I was doing my research uh, and I started conducting oral interviews and I interview, uh, I interview a, a Mark Sharp, 
um, a, a man who was in his late 80s at the time, early 90s. And uh, one of the first things out of his mouth is he says, uh, they lynched a Negro in Hoover time. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, what, what do you, you know, could you, could you talk to me about that a little bit? And so, you know, he tells me the story of, of Oliver Moore. Oliver Moore is charged with uh, sexual assault. He's placed in a jail. Um, 200 men, many of whom are wearing masks, come and uh, allegedly overpower the deputy sheriff who is watching Mark Sharp, take uh, Oliver Moore out of his jail cell, drive him into Wilson County, um, tie a... Uh, tie a rope around his um, shoulders, hoist him up into a tree, and shoot him over 200 times. And this was in, 19, this was in 1930. And, and I use that, and, and that story to, to talk about um, both Wilson's response to the incident as well as the state's response to the incident. Right? The, governor, uh, the governor of North Carolina at the time says, you know, this is a black mark against our, against our state, and we're going to try to bring these people to, bring these people to justice. Meanwhile, in Wilson, um, you know, this, this lynching is, uh, you know, it's, it's a spectacle lynching, right? So, um, you know, after, after Moore's lynching, you start to see, um, you know, his body is kept up for a couple of days and people mm-hmm. come and congregate and start taking pictures and, you know, and sort of hanging out. And, um, and so these pictures are snapped as well. And so uh, there's, a, there's multiple interpretations of this. One interpretation in, in many of the white newspapers is, well, this is social control. This is, this is justice. This is what happens when, uh, you know, Negroes sort of step, step outside of their boundaries and step outside and, 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 and act in transgressive ways. In the black press, this was yet another example of, of, of how, uh, uh, how black life could be extinguished sort of casually, right? Um, you know, a, 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 person, a, number, a, a person in the jail with Oliver Moore is able to identify uh, a number of the folks who come and snatch Moore out of jail. And even with this positive identification, um, no charges are ever brought. Um, the coroner's inquest uh, is inconclusive. They don't. They don't declare this a murder, and so um, so there's there's no case effectively, right? And so this moment in time is seared into Mark Sharp's mind, mm-hmm. and, um, and and one of the other reasons it's seared into his mind, in the minds of a number of other people, is that when they go into town, when they go into Wilson City, uh, in into East Wilson. Um, White proprietors of 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 of, of, of stores, of, you know, shoot, you know, the, the local shoemaker, the shoe shop, and the grocery store. They have they've cut out the picture of Oliver Moore's dead body and have placed that picture in the front window. Mm-hmm. And so when um, Mark Sharp goes to the store with his mother, uh, they see this image. Right, this image is placed in a number of shops and a number of windows. Right, and so it's then so that's a way of that's a way of extending the atrocity. Right. That's a way of of, uh, you know, that's a public declaration of, you know, of 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 black inferiority of it's a reminder that, you know, again, your life can be taken casually um, if you don't conform to, you know, to to the traditional uh, tenets and notions of of segregation, of white supremacy. And so um, and and so that so that story, uh, um, 
I, I tell that story in the uh, in, 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 in the in the introduction. And again, uh, the juxtaposition here between uh, the reality of of life in Wilson for African Americans, how this lynching is used to make uh, to make a public statement, to make a public declaration about uh, the primacy of white supremacy. Um, I contrast that story with um, with the uh, you know with the with the official line from from Raleigh, the official line from the state capitol, which is, "Oh my goodness, uh, lynching! This is something that we can't tolerate." You know, we have a we have a history of of, of moderate race relations here. We have good relations, and so um, so this is. So, so this is out of the ordinary, right? This mm-hmm. is this is a uh, you know anathema to to what we believe. Mm-hmm. So you know it's it's a little it gets it's a little more complicated than that, right? Mm-hmm. So so then uh, so then you know as we as we as we move forward, I, I try to sort of lay out the uh, lay out the terrain, uh, economic terrain and cultural terrain in the late thirties and in uh, nineteen late thirties and early early forties. Um, the, the tobacco economy remains dominant. Um, Yet and still, we see the African-American civic universe in East Wilson, where African-Americans um, overwhelmingly reside in the city of Wilson. We see, this, uh, we see the civic universe there um, really sort of trying to, trying to, you know, to, to make efforts to confront segregation. Um, and, and this is this is an ongoing process, right? And I think Jacqueline Dowd Hall's work about you know the long civil rights movement is instructive, and that's one of the things that I that I sort of wanted to point out in this book, right? That you know the, this, this master narrative of the civil rights movement, you know, that's, that would have us believe that things really take off in '55 and and come to a peak in '68. Much more complicated than that. Wilson's got a long history of a long history of struggle for greater freedom. Uh, African Americans form an independent school in 1918 when a um, when a black teacher is slapped by a white school administrator. Um, teachers quit their jobs and go on strike, and the community comes together and creates an independent elementary school apart from Wilson Public School System that remains in that uh, that 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 stays open for a, a decade or so. And so, so there's a legacy both of uh, uh, both of racial violence, but also of of, of self help and and and, uh, and 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 aggressive uh, aggressive responses to, uh, to to racial atrocities. And so. You know, as, so 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 coming into the story in the 1930s and 1940s, we see uh, the civic universe of, of 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 Wilson County trying to figure out how to make sense of something like, for instance, World War II. What does this war mean for us here now? What does this war mean for our relationship to um, democracy, to equality, um, and? You start to see, um, and also you start to see a, a sort of a, a number of sort of diversified uh, answers to this question. You um, see a, a, a nascent middle class uh, um, activism rising, where uh, you know this coterie again of, of teachers and you know a small smattering of other professionals, uh, morticians and preachers, um, a couple of doctors and, and folks like that are, are charting a, a path of what I, um, of what other scholars have called racial diplomacy. Uh, this diplomacy between um, white elites, political and economic elites, to try to gain small concessions for the black community. Hey, we need a new community center. We need a new hospital. We need a new. We need a new school. Um, going and asking for what they want and being given 
um, being given, you know, a, a smattering of what they want. But we also see um, the the construction of uh, that portion of Wilson's um, African American civic universe. Uh, we we see also uh, a nascent struggle of of working class, poor and working class African Americans, particularly those who are working in tobacco. Um, we see increased union activity in, in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, uh, the CIO is, is is active in the area along with the AFL, trying to trying to organize African American African American tobacco workers, and so we start to see their voices becoming uh, more and more significant as we as as we move forward. And so the traditional battlegrounds that we see in uh, in the larger civil rights narrative around voting rights and and um, you know access to the quality education, we see those things playing out in in, in Wilson as well. But the twist. Um, the twist that I really appreciate in, in, in Wilson is that we see, um, generally we, we tend to associate you know, school integration and, and, and things of this nature with, with middle class activists. Well, in Wilson, it's, the wor- it's working class folk living out in the rural areas mm-hmm. who start to say, you know what, um, <laughs> education stinks out here. Hmm. We don't have a high school. Right. We don't have a middle school. And so uh, what do we need to do in order to gain these things? And we don't necessarily want them. We don't want integrated schools. We want a school. Mm-hmm. Right. We're not pressed about integration. Right. So in the late 40s, you see uh, you start to see in North Carolina and Wilson in particular, you start to see lawsuits um, um, where where uh, where activists are suing for uh, the construction of, of, of high schools that will service African-American students. Again, they're 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 ambivalent about uh, integration. They're ambivalent about um, uh, you know trying to create educational uh, you know edu- educational programming that's going to um, that's going to integrate black and white students. They say no, we want a black high school. Uh, we want a black middle school. We want the the high schools and middle schools and elementary schools that have already been built to be refurbished, to be reconstructed. To um, you know, to 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 um, be brought to be brought up to code and things of this nature, and so so um, so working class activists are are are, are behind that push, and and so middle class activists are, are 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 sort of playing catch up in the late forties and early fifties around the issue of school integration. Um, voting is obviously a, a a very large concern. And so you see middle class folk, um, you know, sort of pushing for the vote, um, pushing to get African American representation on the city council and and things of that nature. And that happens in 1953 when G.K. Butterfield is is elected to the to the city council. But this means different things for different people. Um, for middle class activists, this is a, sort of a foot in the door, right? This is an opportunity for um, uh, for a more formal. Uh, for more formal representation for African Americans, for working class folk, um, <clears throat> they see this uh, in, in a much more ambivalent light. They say, "Well, this is great." G.K. Butterfield, a dentist and World War One veteran, um, community activist. Uh, congratulations, Dr. Butterfield. Um, you know what? But our streets still aren't paved. <laughs> you know, our schools are still segregated. Um, there's still higher levels of police brutality and, and racial. Racial violence and things of this nature. So, um, you know, so what are we what are we going to do about that? Right? What, what's 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 going to happen with 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 these things? Right? And so again, the divergent nature of of the movement in in, in Wilson um, makes for a really for me a, a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the white response to a lot of this activism that begins as, as I say. I mean, I think one of the important things about this book is that it shows that. There was a lot of movement toward what you call a greater Friedman well before 
um, what we might call the traditional narrative, well before any Martin Luther Kings were on the scene. The people are acting in the local community. They're forming civic organizations. They're lobbying the city council. They're trying to get, uh, you know, things like sewers put in and, and, and roads paved. And there's, there's a wonderful passage in there about water. I can't remember if the guy says it being like, well, when one person turns the water on, that means nobody else has it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so these were kind of basic services that they were lobbying for. And I think also it's important to remember that, as you point out, that they were ambivalent about integration. They, they really, you know, they, they didn't really know whether they wanted it at the time, that it might not right. have been a good thing. So that's, but I wanted right. you to talk a little bit about uh, the, the white response to a lot of this, and you have a very interesting phrase for it. I like the phrase racial diplomacy for these African Americans who kind of go and, and gently lobby with the white powers that be to do these things. But then you talk about preemptive management. It's yes. very interesting, a very interesting idea. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to what I'm suggesting with the, with the phrase preemptive management and, and, and other scholars have other, have other phrases, uh, have other phrases for it. But what, what I'm trying to, what I, what I wanted to contend with and what I wanted to break down was this, was this notion that, that all white responses were, were, were functions of massive resistance, right? Were functions of, uh, of no, hell no, essentially, <laughs> right? Um, you know, no, hell no, all the time, every day, all day. Um, by the late 19, well, actually, probably by the mid 1950s, a number of, of of the more forward-thinking officials in in Wilson, in the county as well as in Wilson City, sort of see the writing on the wall in terms of in terms of segregation. Right, segregation is going to be harder and harder to defend um, at a time where. Particularly at a time where you know there's an increased number of federal, um, there's an increased number of uh, federal dollars that are going to become available to to, to municipalities um, for uh, for purposes of inf- infrastructure and, and public housing and and economic development, it's, segregation is becoming more and more untenable. And so uh, and so some of the so there's a there's a small nugget of, of of leaders in Wilson who understand that. And so what what starts to happen. As they engage in what I call preemptive management, which is um, making small concessions to to integration, while um, sort of buttressing segregation in in strategic areas, right? So um, when the sit-ins arrive to uh, come to Wilson in 1963, 1964, um, the the city city officials, the city council, and the city mayor, and the chamber of commerce have been working with uh, with a middle class organization, middle class black organization called the Men's Civic Club, to slowly but surely desegregate um, particular particular towns, um, particular towns in um, I'm sorry, particular sections, particular uh, sections of of the city, and so. So what? Uh, so what? The activists are, and, and so these middle class activists are, you know, are very, very excited about their their progress, right? Um, you know, this progress is is going well. This 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 employment program is going well. Yet and still, right? Um, the vast majority of of, of 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 downtown businesses remain overwhelmingly segregated. Um, the schools in the late fifties, early sixties are still completely and totally segregated. So, hmm. um, but at the same time. Uh, you know the, the the this this small token desegregation is is 
And this is great news, right? This is news, um, you know, that's that's being shouted from the rooftops, right? The local, uh, you know, the theaters are being desegregated. Yay! You know, the local, <laughs> the local all-white hot dog stand is being desegregated. A and W is being desegregated, right? Um, uh, the county stadium is being desegregated. So, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, progress and the forces of the forces of good. They're, mar- you know, we're, we're marching forward. Right, mm-hmm. marching on, and, and and things are, you know, things are going well. Um, but at the same time, the city council is, the city council and the mayor and 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 uh, you know and and, and economic uh, economic leadership in Wilson are also being very mindful um, and and very diligent in trying to figure out how to maintain uh, these all white spaces in um, in in major you know in in major sectors, right? And so uh, so token desegregation works fine. Right, as long as we're not talking about whole scale, whole scale desegregation, mm-hmm. um, as long as we're not talking about the integration of schools, right? This token desegregation, one person here, one person there, uh, is, is 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 fine. Um, and so, as again, as we move into the um, late fifties and early sixties, preemptive management also uh, also means that uh, you know um, city fathers, city leadership is not going to pay a whole is not paying a whole lot of attention to is- issues of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Right issues of municipal services and things of that nature. Um, the garbage doesn't get picked up on a regular basis in um, in in East Wilson um, and also in, in black enclaves uh, around the county. And you know, there's and folks just aren't going to do anything about that, right? Mm-hmm. You know what? This is uh, you know, see the mayor. Well, we went to see the mayor, and he told us to come see uh, come see the the head of uh, you know the, the head of um, you know the head of municipal services committee. Well, go see the mayor, go see the committee, right? So they get so you know so so another very essential component of preemptive management is is the bureaucracy, mm-hmm. right? Is the is the is the city uh, city, and in some instances, the state bureaucracy, which just sort of you know has black folk on this on, on this in this you know in this 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 maze right this this habit trail for those of you out there who know what a habit trail is no i do right uh, <laughs> right i'm showing my age now right? yeah. um 70s baby so um so uh you know so so to that end preemptive management is is quite effective right um you know black black folks uh, on the one hand, are celebrating these, you know, these, 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 uh, these, t- these token inroads, and there is a spirit of change in the air, and there are some, you know, there are some larger concessions being made, but you know, when you get right down to it, the structure of integrate, uh, the structure of segregation, and the culture of segregation um, is still pretty firmly intact in the mid in in the mid 1960s, mm-hmm. and so. Um, and, and so, and so, the response to that is um, a, a growing sort of uh, disenchantment with both white leadership uh, as well as black leadership on the part of uh, of working class activists because they see and understand how their issues have been consistently sort of ignored, right? You know, if you are, um, you know, if you're if you're a middle class uh, if you're a middle class black uh, family in 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 Wilson. <laughs> Chances are you live on a street that's paved, mm-hmm. right? If you're a middle class black um, black family in Wilson, um, you know segregation looks a little different to you because of your uh, because of your socioeconomic status. Clearly, there's you know there's there's some areas of mutual, uh, you know there's some there's some concentric areas, right? In terms of in terms of the realities of of segregation and white supremacy, but um, you know. To be poor and working class in the American South in in the late fifties and, and and on into the sixties, well, on into the seventies and eighties for that matter, um, to be poor and working class um, in 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 these regions is to um, is is to face 
um, you know, another uh, is, is is to face another aspect of of, of segregation mm-hmm. uh, and dislocation that 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 middle class activists just just really couldn't fathom or weren't concerned about, right? So, for instance, when when issues of housing uh, arise in the late fifties and early sixties, and uh, working class activists are increasingly becoming more and more organized and are and are starting to organize around again issues of municipal services and around issues of of dilapidated and and substandard housing this doesn't become a concern uh, as far as i can tell this doesn't become an active concern of 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 elite black leadership in wilson until uh the mid to late 60s Hmm. right even though um you know everyone knows that you know 70% 70% of the houses in, in, in East Wilson are, uh, are dilapidated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 50% of the houses are, are deemed, you know, unfit for human habitation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and people are scared about this, right? You know, you know, it's, it's, you can't, you know, who do you complain to about this when, you know, when your landlord is, uh, you know, when your landlord is one of the richest people in town or when your landlord is on the city council? When your landlord's on the housing, you know, works at the housing authority or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or when you know, as, as a number of people would say, you know, if you went to complain about the fact that, um, you know, the, 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 the planks on, you know, the, the planks that make up your floor have holes in them and, uh, you know, it's letting all your heat out and, and, you know, and you can see the dirt under your house and it's letting all these rodents in and all sort of kind of stuff. If you complain to this, if you complain to your landlord about this, your landlord will come nail a board down under your you know, nail a board onto your onto your floor, and raise your rent by three dollars mm-hmm. a month, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you know, I had a couple of people say, "Well, I you know, I couldn't afford to complain about my dilapidated housing, mm-hmm. right? Because that was going to have real and serious consequences for me." Mm-hmm. So, um, so, uh, so working class. So, so poor and working class activists are some of the first people in town to 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 to, um, to figure out that we need a new language, we need a new system with which to confront preemptive management because um, because the silence of, of 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 middle class and elite black leadership, particularly again in the areas of municipal um, municipal services and and housing, that um, that silence or that reluctance to act. Um, say, say, working class activists is killing us, mm-hmm. right? You know, our kids get sick. You know, when my kid gets sick, he's got to stay home. If I got to stay home, that means I'm not bringing money home. Mm-hmm. Or I'm an hourly, I'm a wage worker, right? So for every day of work, I, I, I'm losing. I'm losing money, right? Right. So do I stay home with my kid or not? Um, and the reason my kid is sick is because, well, you know, because the garbage doesn't get picked up on a regular basis. And you know, what do you mean take them to the doctors and pay? For medicine with what, right? Again, I don't have any cash. I can't do that, right? I'm I'm, un, I'm uninsured, right? Which is which we could. It's like a current conversation, right? Yeah. And so, and so again, uh, you know, working class folk are the ones who start to increasingly who are in, who are increasingly willing to confront this preemptive management that they see occurring. Um, that's 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 having a that's having the effect of sort of neutralizing in, in some ways, right, sort of neutralizing um, uh, elite black uh, leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So one of the things I wanted to uh, just discuss very briefly or, or, or at least just mention is that sometimes this preemptive management was a bit more naked than others. For example, when they abolished the ward system. Right. Could you talk a little about that? I just thought that was that was very cheeky. Yes. Well, <laughs> you know, in 19, right, 1953, G.K. Butterfield, um, a dentist and community activist, World War I veteran, one of the founding members of the NAACP chapter in Wilson, 
um, wins a seat on the city council in 19, 1953, much to the consternation of of, uh, of, of black leader, uh, excuse me, of white leaders in, in, in town, and he is um, he's elected, he's reelected in 1955. Um, again, there's this massive. Uh, massive um get out the vote effort uh in in the in the black section of 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 ward three ward three um um, uh, leaders city councilmen are are elected by wards as a ward system and ward three is uh was split fairly evenly between white voters and black voters um but uh Butterfield uh, is able to tie and then uh, and then ultimately win in fifty three and then he's in in and then in fifty five black voters simply show up in higher rates than white voters and so he he's reelected nineteen fifty seven the city council votes to dissolve the ward system and so in nineteen fifty seven um, instead of people running for the uh, particular ward everyone's running at large and um, and the system Basically, it says, "Okay, well, the top seven people um, who the top seven vote getters, there's your city council." Mm-hmm. And so, Butterfield is the only incumbent to lose his seat. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, and, and this was something that's, uh, you know, and this was something that's going on all across the South, right? We see in the fifties and early, we see throughout the fifties and sixties, cities switching from uh, from uh, from wards to at-large elections, and 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 like Wilson, right? You know. It, as far as I can tell, the sole purpose of this was to dilute concentrated black votes, you know, um, block yep. vote. Because the other thing that um, the, the, the the other rule that gets changed in Wilson is, uh, is there's an implementation of a rule called anti-single uh, shot voting. Um, and so what that means is when you go in and vote for a city council, you have to vote for seven people. You can't just go in and vote for one person, uh-huh. right? So what does that mean? It means African-American voters in Wilson, you can't just go in and vote for G.K. Butterfield and turn in your ballot. Right. If you do that, then your ballot is your, your ballot is excluded. It's, mm-hmm. it's rendered invalid. And so, so, the at, so, the, so the change to the at-large vote and the change um, with the, uh, the implementation of the anti-single-shot rule um, – uh, gets gets uh, gets Butterfield um, uh, defeated, mm-hmm. and uh, another activist in town uh, winds up taking this, uh, sues the city, and uh, takes the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not hear the case and lets mm-hmm. the um, lets the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court um, ruling, which said that there's you know there's you, you can't prove harm here, you can't prove racial intent. So it lets that it lets mm-hmm. that um, it, it lets that standing lets that ruling stand. Um, but yeah, this this is an example of, of some fairly you know of, of a fairly uh, fairly naked attempt yeah. to, to disenfranchise um, a growing. Uh, a growing act, um, a growing uh, African American uh, voting bloc, and mm-hmm. throughout the throughout both of these elections, um, the Wilson Daily Times, the newspaper, is, is printing, you know, they're, they're printing on a regular basis the number of African Americans who are registering to vote, right? <laughs> they're saying, like, hey, you know what, you know, another another fifteen another fifteen Negroes registered, today. Yeah. another twenty Negroes registered yeah. today, right? yeah. another you know uh-huh. you know like, hey white folks heads up, yeah, right? right, you know, the, uh-huh. uh, Negroes are. You know, and you know and so again a fairly naked attempt to to try to keep tabs and to yeah. keep count so that uh, so that uh, white officials could govern themselves uh, could govern themselves accordingly mm-hmm. yeah so um, talk a little bit about what happens in the 60s when uh, the 
uh, I guess the civil rights movement kind of comes to consciousness of so to greater America. How does that? How does that? Uh, how does that affect things in Wilson? Well, I would contend that um, you know as we move into the late, as we move into the late sixties, um, you know there's there is a there's a, a convergence of sorts with uh, with with the movement with the movement in Wilson. Working class activists are um, increasingly becoming involved in the movement in Wilson, and uh, with this increased involvement, there is an increased focus on again some of these bread and butter issues that are that were further down the list, further down on the list for um, for for middle class uh, for middle class activists. And so, um, as the movement uh, as the movement becomes nationalized, right, as in 1964 and 1965, with you know with events such as uh, Freedom Summer and and uh, Selma March, obviously the March on Washington. Um, you know, as the as as the movement becomes nationalized, there are you know various constituencies within Wilson trying to make meaning of this of this movement, trying to figure out what does this national movement mean for us here in Wilson, right? And so, um, so again, white leadership is trying to figure out which which areas. Um, it should relent, which areas um, it should sort of bolster its defenses. Middle-class African-American leadership is, um, is continuing to hammer on issues of, 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 of voting and school, uh, school desegregation and hiring of, uh, of, of African-Americans um, within, the, uh, within, the economic, uh, within the economic arena in, in Wilson. And increasingly, once again, working-class activists are, are becoming more and more organized. Um, they're, becoming, they're getting exposed to um, community, uh, community activists and community organizers from other portions of the state. Uh, Wilson is in dialogue because of um, because of a large youth chapter of the NAACP, um, and because of the activities of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The SCLC was uh, was pretty heavily uh, was pretty active in Eastern North Carolina, and um, as a matter of fact, uh, Toby um, uh, Milton Fitch, uh, who lives in uh, who lives in, in Wilson in the fifties and sixties. As a former, as a, as a letter carrier, uh, Fitch is the state um, you know, state representative for the SCLC, and so Wilson is connected. Wilson is plugged in to um, a statewide network of activists, and it is connected. Um, and, and this statewide network of activists these are these are activists who are working for and with national organizations. Um, one of the key turning points I contend in the book is when working class folk in Wilson bump into an organization called the Foundation for Community Development. This is an organization that was um, founded uh, in 1967-1968 that is dedicated to training community activists across the state. But unlike uh, a SNCC model or an SCLC model, these folks have foundation money. They've got they've got uh, money from uh, from the North Carolina Fund, which is a Ford Foundation funded initiative. To um, it's one of the early it's one of the precursors to to, to Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, mm-hmm. right? So so FCD activists um, identify Wilson as one of the places where where um, where they need to send they need to send in uh, some other uh, they need to send in some trained activists to work with and help. Uh, help uh, help folks in, in in Wilson sort of institutionalize their their social change mechanisms, right? So so they send a couple of organizers and they say, look, 
Um, we're here to help you all. What are your What are your issues? What are your concerns? What are the things around which we What are the issues around which we need to be organizing? And of course, overwhelmingly, people are talking about you know the the municipal the municipal issues again and and housing. They're also talking about school desegregation. They're also talking about police brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also talking about access to you know access to um you know, to decent jobs and, and decent wages and things of this nature. Um, and so the kicker is when FCD starts training. Uh, starts training and organizing um, uh, working class activists, and so um, you get a rise of you get the rise of, of folks like Fanny Corbett, who, who I talk about extensively in Chapter Four, and Velma Farmer, and 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 uh, this this wonderful uh, this wonderful group of, of black working class women who who come in and say, hey, you know what? It's our time. Right, it's time for us to step to the front, to step to the forefront. We've been trained. Um, we've been trained by this organization that is increasingly um, um, starting to contend with uh, the realities of, of, of black power and black nationalism. Right, and so uh, so activists are coming in and, and telling these working class uh, women and men, "Hey, you know what? It's time for us to build our own institutions. It's time for us to confront." Um, uh, to confront white leadership in some different ways, it's time for us to start thinking in terms of in terms of ownership. Are you taxpayers? Yes. Well, then this is your city. You pay for this city, right? Your money builds this. You, your money built this city. So let's re. So let's re. So let's you know. So so let's reshape our relationship. Um, to the uh, you know to, to to city government, let's reshape our relationship to, with the city council and with the mayor. Let's go in with the Roberts Rules of Order so that we can understand um, how to navigate and negotiate the bureaucracy. Right? Let's do you know. Let's engage um, the, the the legal and bureaucratic process. Right? Let's hire and retain lawyers. Let's go out and let's go out and take photographs of these um, you know of of, of this dilapidated housing and go and confront the housing authority and ask them why aren't they um, why aren't they enforcing their own laws why aren't they enforcing the housing code that they've passed to make sure that um, everybody in Wilson um, has a, you know, a decent place to live and has a decent <clears throat> has access to water and, uh, and things of this nature and so uh, and so uh, again this is a this is a process this is a, a moment in time where um, where activists in Wilson are definitely definitely have one eye on Wilson, but they've they're, but they're casting another eye out into other parts of uh, other regions of North Carolina, right? Where you know where you see um, increasing progressive action on parts of working class, poor and working class folks. So they've got an eye on Durham. They've got an eye on Greensboro. They also they have an eye on um, you know on a number of hotspots across the country where um, again where working class activists are really starting to you know are really starting to um, come to the fore when it comes to uh, when it comes to this movement right you know, again the late sixties early seventies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So tell us a little bit about uh, we're running out of time, which is too bad because I'm really enjoying hearing you talk. Tell us a little bit about Wilson today. What's it? What's it like? Well, Wilson today is um, is a town that is still sort of trying to answer the question. Okay, what happens now that the tobacco industry is, is, has has transformed itself? Um, you know, they're asking the question: How do we bring in more industry? How do we, um, you know, how do we retool and, and remake our remake ourselves? And so there's been some there's been some pretty you know some pretty notable inroads in terms of attracting uh, attracting businesses. Um, 
you know, there's been a um, there's been a, a, a transformation of the of the educational structure where you've got um, local local colleges and particularly local community colleges that are trying to help people to retrain themselves so that um, so that they can get back out and get back into the work uh, back into the workforce. Um, you still see a lot of the challenges associated with um, a transformed uh, a transformed economy, um, and also you also see the manifestations of this gap, right? The gap between uh, black unemployment and white unemployment is is, is fairly fairly substantial. Mm-hmm. The gap between um, the education gap uh, also remains fairly uh, fairly uh, fairly substantial, um, and so a lot of the challenges. Uh, um, um, a lot of the challenges that were that people were confronting in the '60s and '50s, '60s and '70s, um, a, a, a new generation of, of, of Wilsonians, black and white, are are, um, uh, are continuing to sort of to work on these uh, to work on these issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, is there um, a lot of uh, I don't know if you can answer this question? Is there a lot of racial tension today in Wilson? I think that. Um, the, the the racial the racial tension in in, in Wilson and I'll will speak tentatively here because yeah sure spent you know a, a, a having moved to, to, to Memphis it, it sort of wrecked my wrecked my <laughs> travel plans in terms of getting back to yeah. so, um but the um you know uh I see what what I do notice is sort of a generational a generational difference in terms of how people talk about the challenges, right? So when I so when I do go back and talk to um, folks who are working in the social service arena, or folks who are working in education, they they talk about the challenges of 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 of, of, of post industrial realities, yeah. right? They talk about the challenge again of of, of mechanization and, and of losing, you know, and, and of these these titanic shifts in in, in structural and economic realities, right? Mm-hmm. And and how those shifts. Um, you know, make life um, make life hard for you know a variety of people. Mm-hmm. Older activists, when I go back and talk with talk with them, they have a much uh, they, they 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 talk about and articulate in a different way um, uh, what these challenges are like, and they're and and they're very explicit in connecting current challenges with the challenges of the 19 associated with the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. right there um they will talk about again i'm thinking about the, they'll talk about they'll talk in terms of a long civil rights movement yeah right so um you know so the last time i talked with uh fanny corbett a couple of months ago she was like yep yeah, you know what um at my church and some other places it's time for us to start gathering together um gathering together the men and talking with them about you know, talking with them about the importance of you know taking care of your families, taking care of your kids, and and you know, and, and being you know, uh, and, and being good people, right? Mm-hmm. Being um, you know, being good Christian, uh, good Christian individuals and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then would turn right around and say, you know, because uh, you know, when we were working on you know these issues back in the back in the day, right? Um, you know, she would you know, so, so she was she was making explicit connections between. Um, between the work that she starts doing in the mid '60s and the work that she wants to start engaging in uh, in 2010, 2011, uh-huh. right? forty and you know forty forty plus years, uh, forty plus years later, and so um, and so that's the that's the one thing that I, I do notice, right? The, uh-huh. the old heads, the old heads who were around in the '50s and '60s, they say, look, this is just another chapter of of of, of the same book. Right, um, which also ultimately, you know, influenced the title of my own book. Right, you know, greater freedom. Um, 
you know, I had in mind uh, the phrase, you know, uh, in order to build a more perfect union. Yep. You never get perfect, mm-hmm. right? You continually strive to become more perfect. Well, you continually strive to attain greater freedom, and that's the spirit that um, that these activists that I um, that I that I that I um, you know that, that I talk about in the book. That's the spirit um, in which they move. That's the spirit in which they function. They were in a constant pursuit. Of greater freedom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's a terrific book. Let me um, close the interview by asking uh, our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, Charles, what, what the heck are you working on now? Not a thing, Marshall. <laughs> no, uh, actually, going to the Bahamas. Uh, that's right. That's right. Awkward pause. I'm not working on anything, man. Um, I. Uh, since I since I live in Memphis now, I've been here for I've been here for six years, and 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 uh, although the my my book came out last year, I, I was I've been torn between continued research in North Carolina and uh, and and starting up uh, my you know and growing some research roots uh, here in Memphis, and I've bumped into a I've bumped into an individual uh, by the name of George Washington Lee. He was an African American Republican political activist. What a name! Who lived, uh, who lived here um, in Memphis uh, from the 1920s um, on through the 19, 1976 until his uh, until his death in seventy six. And uh, George Washington Lee is a is a fascinating it's a fascinating figure. He is a black nationalist in the nineteen twenties. He is an ardent capitalist. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, he is a, um, a political activist who is fighting for um, for the you know for African American uh, for African American political power in the 19, uh, 1950s and 60s, and and um, uh, one of the culminating events of his life is in 1964 he is purged from the Republican Party at the Republican huh. National Convention. Um, he is a uh, Rockefeller Republican, <laughs> and so uh, the um, Goldwater people um, boot him out. And uh, it is Lee's contention that he is not booted out of the Republican Party because, uh, or at least out of the convention, he is not. Um, he is not. Uh, barred from the convention because of his affiliation with particular Republicans. He is barred because of his race. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I'm becoming increasingly interested in this, uh, in, in this moment in 1964, um, because I think it's got something, I think it's got something to tell us about, um, about the, the uh, trajectory of Southern politics, mm-hmm. um, particularly Southern politics uh, on the Republican side. So, so, uh, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm knocking around these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it, it sounds like a great project and, um, I hope we get a chance to talk about it. I want to thank you for three things. Uh, one is for writing the book, and the second is for talking with us today. And the third, oddly enough, is mentioning habit trails. I just hadn't thought about that since the seventies. I know I'm going to get emails like, "What the heck is that exactly?" Yes, I don't really. Right. Know. I'm not, just like don't tell anybody. I'm not like going to tell anybody if you don't. Yeah, I like what they are. Old school sometimes. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, Charles, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. Uh, okay. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Charles McKinney about his book, Greater Freedom. The Evolution of the Civil Rights Struggle in Wilson, North Carolina. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.